welcome back to another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. I'm your host, Danielle Hanley, and joining me on the other line, now that he's finished placing diamonds in bags of loose-leaf tea, it's John McMahon. Thank you, Danielle, but pleasant surprise for everybody. Also on the other line, she's joining us for the very first time. She just wanted to feed the ducks, and now she got roped into a podcast episode. It's Amy Schiller. Welcome, Amy, to the Not Quite Great Books TV podcast. It's such an honor to be here. Would you like a more formal introduction? I don't need one. (laughs) (laughs) Amy is a dear friend of Danielle and I. Amy is also, which is the primary qualification, let's be clear. Amy is also postdoctoral fellow at the Dartmouth Society of Fellows and the author of The Price of Humanity, which is forthcoming from Melville House in 2023, creator of Beyond Seder, which you all should know, and... And Danielle, the mythical producer Amy has is now less mythical. Yeah, the prodigal daughter returns. <laughs> Would you say I'm a producer or like a like a production muse? Like <laughs> both and baby, both and. <laughs> our first I, like, I, I like production muse. You know, I'm the inspiration behind. <laughs> The structure. Whether Amy is present or not for any recording, whether she's ever listened to a minute of this podcast before or not, she is in spirit the producer of this podcast. And we do thank her at the end of every episode. It's true. It's and I so put true. that on my CV. <laughs> Does that come before or after the forthcoming book from the House? Just a question. It before. really depends how, when I finish the book. <laughs> <laughs> or when this episode gets posted, like yeah, it's, exactly. let's be clear here. Um, Amy, you have not watched The Americans before. This is something we're checking in with with our various guests. I have the level of geopolitical sophistication as the writers of Rocky and Bullwinkle, who created Boris and Natasha. Wow. <laughs> Take that song, brother. I can tell you, Stan looked like Moose. <laughs> so, Noah Emmerich, like. Tough, tough looks for Stan. You know, he pulls it off, though. That's a question that we can we can debate. Uh, When we talk about this episode of The Americans, Americans, season one, episode six, Trust Me, directed by Daniel Sackheim and written by Sneha Kors. And Danielle, I think you have an IMDb episode summary to read for us. Yeah, so the summary from IMDb is a mole hunt within the KGB causes suspicion amongst allies and shatters trust within the Jennings marriage. Meanwhile, Stan's plan to keep his mole safe puts her at even greater risk of discovery. I feel like IMDb did a good job there. Yeah, I don't know why they didn't just name Nina, uh, but that's okay. That's <laughs> because fine. Because she's a mole, John. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's right. IMDb can't reveal the secret status of Nina Sergeyevna um, in this episode. Exactly. So I think we wanted to start by just acknowledging the like conflict or strangeness of talking about the show in like this moment. It is March first, twenty twenty one. So the twenty twenty two. There we go. True temporality conundrums there. Yeah. Uh, March 1st, 2022. So Russia is in the middle of invading Ukraine right now. Um, And so like the normal jokiness that we have about Soviet nostalgia or Soviet kitsch or Soviet aesthetics feels like way more fraught than previous times we have recorded this podcast. Yeah. The aesthetics of it 
um, you know, watching it as a time capsule is, is such a, it can be such a pleasure in this sort of, you know, we're at such a remove and in the span of like a week, maybe I went from laughing at like the Gorbachev pizza hut commercial to, you know, just the dread of realizing that there were real, there were real stakes that are now happening in real time. And that there was, you know, this was not just a matter of like, the cartoon villainry, you know, animated children's show jokes aside, like yeah. this was real, like struggle for power resources, a lot of lives lost, like that, you know, it, in some ways it reintroduced stakes and in some ways it just sort of sat uneasily alongside this yeah. like very differently styled form of conflict. Yeah. 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 And I think like there's something about watching this show in the like against the backdrop of of everything that's going on with Russia and Ukraine where for me the part of what i appreciate about this show is it sort of brings me back to my like grade school days of like learning weird stuff about the Soviet Union and then like having that history like reworked at some point later on and this there's 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 a a, a weird tension between like the far offness of that in my own past and how present the conflict has become yet again. And just like how quickly that happened. Yeah. So we just wanted to sort of start by acknowledging that there is certainly a tension like in our own discussion about this. And we wanted to call that out. And so Amy, I mean, maybe a question for you then in response is someone coming to the show new that Danielle and I have talked about over these first few episodes is the way the show engages, depicts, critiques, like explores how nationalism functions. So I'm wondering if there's like anything about this episode that particularly struck you in the way that it engages how nationalism is working for in the lives of these people and the geopolitics in which the show is depicting them and, you know, as part of and so on and so forth. It's funny you say that, John, because actually in a way I felt like, and again, this is somebody who's new to the show and is watching this, just the episode for the first time. I, um, it is so personalized. Like all of the plot lines on the show feel like they are actually just these human sized conflicts. Um, and I'm thinking especially of the scene where, um, Elizabeth fights Claudia, right. And punches her in the face. And it's just like, this is there, there's, there's actually feels like there's a lack of clarification about the big picture, what are the national security, like, aims of it. Like, it actually felt absent in a weird way of, like, what what either party was, like, nationally speaking, was seeking to achieve. And it got sort of reduced to this very, like, human maneuvering that just became, like, a cat and mouse game for its own sake. That's interesting because I, I think, like, in watching the show, like, in watching the, the, like, the show lead up to here, I don't have as much of that, like, oh, it just feels like a competition for the sake of competition or a conflict for the sake of conflict. But I do think, and, like, this, this goes back to, like, you know, fourth grade, fifth grade Danielle, like that is how I understood the conflict of the cold war. Right. So there is something 
I think you're hitting, you're tapping into something reductive that I do think is part of like American representations of this conflict, whether it be like in the moment, which is what I was getting like in elementary school and, and middle school, or um, like siphoned through this, this like aesthetic. Version. Which the yeah. show does identify, I think to some extent, right? Like the, the FBI officers, right? So Stan, most of all, but like Gad, even more so than Stan, um, in terms, you know, Stan in terms of screen time, Gad in terms of commitment, they are true believers in American, like, uh, exceptionalism, American, like, myth- mythologized national identity, mm-hmm. and all of that kind of stuff. And they're in a position structurally within the show where they never really have to question that. Although maybe like Nina potentially could push Stan to do that. Whereas like Philip and Elizabeth, you know, Elizabeth is as much a true believer in the Soviets as Stan is in the Americans. Yeah. But they're at least in this like crossing over back and forth between having to try on the American identities. And like for Philip, that clearly has muddled the picture of what those kind of nationalistic commitments might mean for him or might look like for him in a way it hasn't necessarily with Elizabeth, but they're at least structurally having to shuttle back and forth between trying on or pretending different kinds of nationalisms. And, you know, Stan or Gad or Amador, although I don't think we see Amador on this episode at all, uh, never have to do that. And I will say for the contemporary moment, um, Russia often gets flattened into just like, big bad, right? Like Russia's just an aggressor for the, for the aggression's sake. And I, every day I feel like I see more and more threads on Twitter that are explaining what is Russia after? What are its motivations? Like what does Russia have to gain? Because our memory of cold war is just like Russia is an aggressor writ large and constitutionally not populated necessarily with a clear sense of Russia is seeking access to natural resources or Russia is seeking like territorial position so that it can like influence the rest of Europe. It doesn't have that. It often doesn't have that specificity. And I think in part that's, that can be attributed to how we remember the cold war as just like Russia, bad aggressor communism next. And how we can like play act at war from like the comfort of Twitter or whatever, like clearly a no fly zone would be the best thing to do. And it would have no actual fucking consequences that exist in the world. But like the bigger issue is that, you know, that like, this is an imperialist venture by Russia. Like the Iraq war was an imperialist venture by the United States too. And like, there's very little, unless you're like in the left social media circles that we all travel into various extents where like, that's, that's, that's part of what the American nationalism, uh, that, uh, you know, Stan in his seventies is like, uh, the Soviets to the Russians, they're all so terrible and like supported the Iraq war 20 years ago. Well, and I, I also think, like, just to, to come back to the show a little bit, like, and John, to something you were saying a moment ago, that Philip and Elizabeth are, like, there are avatars for complicating the relationship between these nationalisms and how they conflict with one another. But, like, we also get on the, and Amy, this goes to your point of Russia as the big bad, right? And this comes into this episode sort of in a, like, 
way that smacked me in the face, which is so like you do get Russia as the big bad with like interrogator dude and his henchmen and then Claudia. Like Russia comes in and is super violent with its own, which I think just complicates the story. The the relationship between those competing nationalisms like even more so maybe this is a good time to shift into into some of the other themes of the episode yeah so this episode is you know much like a couple episodes ago with in control uh <laughs> you know is is the theme of the episode and the name of the episode yes friends, it is. um <laughs> right so but as we think about the multiple functions or ways that trust is operating in this episode i think one question i i know danielle's answer to this because we chatted about it but amy we did not get the chance to ask you before we started recording at what point if at all so let's this is to amy first so at what yeah. point if at all do Philip and Elizabeth each know that it is in fact the so or think that it is in fact the KGB, it is in fact the Soviets interrogating them? If they recognize that at all. What do you think, Amy, is like again, the like new the new viewer, the like fresh perspective on this? Because Danielle and I actually maybe slightly disagree a bit, so yeah. I'm interested in. You know, I, I um, took the narrative at face value that they each had that realization when Claudia appeared and told them mm-hmm. and that they uh, certainly thinking back now, I realize Elizabeth responded with a more visceral surprise. So it is possible that Philip reached that conclusion earlier but it seems more that Philip's great realization was after they're let go and they're walking mm-hmm. down past that warehouse. Um, and he, uh, and he, he starts to suspect that Elizabeth has double crossed him in some way back to the intro. But I don't think that would have been his first moment of realizing. I think they both realized it was coming from inside the Kremlin, if you will, <laughs> um, when they were, you know, told that, um, but the, I don't, it does seem like there was a slower unspooling of the ramifications. But are, what are your theories here? John, do you want to go first? Sure. So, I mean, I I think there's a moment in the second scene where Philip is being tortured, where Matthew Reese like has a slight shift in his facial expression that I interpreted in my third time through this show is, oh, now he thinks this is actually the KGB trying to see if he's the, the mole or not. Um, and I had, it's funny, I hadn't really ever considered Elizabeth and what, and if she knows when she knows um, or whether she even considers it. And then Danielle, you posited a thought that I think is somewhat similar to Amy's idea here. Yeah, I don't think that Elizabeth knows. Like, I think that Elizabeth is actually surprised because she doesn't believe that the KGB or, like, that, like, Mother Russia would ever betray her because she's risking her life in so many ways for this. With Philip, though, so back to Danielle's uh, scribbled notes and... um, So first of all, I just want to say, I told John this before we started recording, but I stopped the episode at 13 minutes and 27 seconds, which I believe is during that second interrogation scene. But I stopped the episode to be like, okay, the, and I wrote down, these Jews are definitely trying to figure out if Philip and Elizabeth are the moles, but 
The first interrogation I wrote, this dude looks very American, must be Russian intel for the, like, the, like, that head interrogator. So I think that Philip knows from the minute they take his uh, blonde wig off, like, because they are revealing so much about, like, they're just like, he's just like brain dumping facts about Philip's life. And I think that, like, they're ju- they've been doing this for so long and they're so well-trained, which I think then makes the fact that Elizabeth does not seem to know so much more surprising. And it gives us the weight of that betrayal. Mm. That's where I'm at on it. <laughs> and there's, I, I, that makes a lot of sense to me. There's one among perhaps several places where like the KGB interrogators like seem to misread Philip and Elizabeth. And I think that's captured more than anywhere else when they bring Elizabeth in as if like, okay, we're going to do something to her. And now unless Philip, you talk, you say something and Philip actually finds or verbalizes an additional level or layer of resolve. And like, you are not going to get anything from us. We have been trained so, like, that particular ploy actually worked against their supposed aims. And so it, amid the unraveling trust between Philip and Elizabeth that, Amy, you pointed to happening happens as they're walking away afterwards, there's that moment also, though, in the, in the interrogation, the torture itself, where that trust between them or that bond between them is actually what sustains their maintaining their secrecy. Which is surprising, right? Because, like, we know from from earlier on that like, and Amy, we don't expect you to know this, but like (laughs) Elizabeth being hurt is like Philip's kryptonite. Like we have seen him go a little bit nuts when she's threatened. And so I think like as the audience, we're meant to expect that like this of course is going to break him. And I think it demonstrates just how, how much the trust between them has grown right just before it's about to, to start unwinding. And so we're left with the situation at the end of the interrogation where Elizabeth feels betrayed by the KGB. Philip feels betrayed by Elizabeth for something Elizabeth said back in episode one or episode two that Philip liked it in America too much. He, she did not tell like her KGB superiors did not tell general Zhukov that Philip wanted to defect just that Philip liked it in America a little bit too much. And like that comes back now. And Philip has the realization that Elizabeth must've told somebody that he said something like that or told him, told them about the defection. Right. So there's that, like they're, they're experiencing different betrayals, betrayals by a person versus an institution slash nation. And one of them feels betrayed by the other. Elizabeth seems to feel bad. Maybe I don't know. What Here's do you want to say? Can I just say yes. Elizabeth's responses when Philip asked her questions were so weirdly evasive and deflecting. It's, I was like, "This is not good teamwork, guys." Like, <laughs> I don't know if this is like I like. This is for the Danielle dossier. Yes. I don't know if yes. this is a marriage thing. I don't know if this is a spies thing, but I definitely feel it's like... It's always both in the show. It's always, right. It's if, you're married, if you're both married and spies, anytime you get a question that says, what did you tell them? You should be prepared to respond directly and in full because that's the only way 
that well, setup works. Well, and I think that's kind of what Elizabeth is frustrated by, where she's like, the expectation is that I'm going to answer the questions, but like, she's what I think she's trying to communicate is like, I was truthful with you. I did not tell Zhukov that you wanted to defect, but I did have to like tell them the answer to this question in some way. Say that after you tell him what the answer was and you say, here's what I told them. I'm sorry that I did that. I know it probably increased some scrutiny on you. I had to tell him something. This is part, like it's part of the job. I did what I could at the time. But the way she does it, where she's, like, avoiding telling him what she said for a few beats, it's like, nah, girl. I 100% agree with this perspective. And I think that is what tells us as the audience that Elizabeth genuinely does feel bad. Yeah. Because I think she's very ready to be extremely matter-of-fact and direct almost all of the time and has this kind of truly brutal honesty and matter-of-factness. And thus that she is deflecting and prevaricating here indicates that some other emotional shit has indeed happened for her. Yeah, but this is the whole thing, right? Like, Philip is in love with Elizabeth, but Elizabeth is in love with the KGB, right? And so, like, in this moment, what has happened is that the, like, Philip's love for Elizabeth has been challenged in sort of, like, in the same way that Elizabeth's love for the KGB has been challenged, right? Like, she can't respond in her her usual sort of like I wouldn't say flat affect but like sort of buttoned up uh straightforward way because like her heart has literally just been broken right she mm. beats the shit out of Claudia sort of like out of nowhere that one really surprised me especially because there have been many moments over the preceding episodes where Claudia is really trying to bond with Elizabeth Ugh. as two women spies, right? Girl bossing their way through the like, KGB. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, and we, I mean, we talked about that kind of at length on the last episode, Danielle, about the way, or the past two episodes, the yeah. way that Claudia tried to do this like girl boss solidarity with. Like, we both sleep with uh, people. But like all girl bosses, they will eventually choose the boss. <laughs> Claudia's girl. like, we both sleep with people for the country. It's like, okay everybody relax like get out of here <laughs> <laughs> i um that's so depressing john to think like wow when somebody is evasive and prevaricating it means they really care about you that's a very grim <laughs> takeaway that's not how i like run my own life <laughs> no definitely not of course <laughs> actually it's just commentary on narrative strategy for sure i mean but it's it's also the when is the spying about marriage and domesticity and kinship and the family slash when is the kinship, domestic family marriage about the spy craft that this show is constantly asking right. us to think about. Can I just talk about one of my favorite moments of conflict um, that shows the, the duality of spying and marriage, which was when Philip asks, do you have any jewelry that I can give Martha oh. from your bureau? That was so cold. You guys. <laughs> Even colder <laughs> is Carrie Russell doing the most disdainful face I have ever witnessed anybody give yeah. in their life to Philip in response. Also, it's in what looks like a ring box. I, and I was like, 
I, <laughs> this girl did not just give him back the engagement ring. That did, what fucking real housewives of Soviet <laughs> Russia is this? Real housewives of the Potomac. Um, right, oh, right. Potomac. Honestly, <laughs> join the franchise. Slash Leningrad. <laughs> Yeah, that was so I mean, cold. It was so cold and such a such a like a calculated use on both their parts yes. of the of the spying to justify like marital wounding. Oof. Brilliant. Ugh. Brilliant. There's a whole nother level on which all of the conflicts were just have talked about, and particularly the twinning of the spying and the family life goes together. And that is the way in which this episode amplifies the kids versus parents dynamic. Because while all the shit is happening, the kids. Philip and Elizabeth is not there to pick the kids up from the mall. So they debate for a while about what they're going to do. They go hitchhiking. Creeping. They're not surprised about it, though. I just want to put a pin in that. <laughs> not at all. Come to that later. Yeah. <laughs> Creeper Nick picks them up as they start to hitchhike. Wow. They end up, like, stopping at the pond. They're going to feed the ducks. He brings out the Dutch beer because he's a fancy, sophisticated man. Uh, and like the then, writer's room were like, can we create a character that's just made up of red flags? <laughs> like, how strongly can we signpost that this guy is a dangerous creep? But also... Which, which Henry picks up on yeah. immediately. immediately. I thought you were going to work. I thought you had somewhere yeah. to be. I'm not going to give you any information about myself. And then Henry like makes the plan to hit him over the head with the beer bottle on his own, which I was like, yes, Henry, in. Clearly his mother's son. This is the <laughs> most Henry we've gotten in any Ever. episode so far. Even mentions of Henry, <laughs> let alone like presence of Henry. <laughs> Sorry to talk about another show on this podcast about a TV show, but there's a show <laughs> called well, um, Welcome to TV Podcasting. Right. right. So, um, has either of you ever watched Swing Town? No, this I is a show that ran that for, is. I think, like one, maybe, two, maybe just one season. It's a fantastic show. Um, about these three couples in 1976 and basically like one we start off with two of the couples one of them involves molly parker of deadwood fame um and the other one is miriam shore who plays diana trout on younger and obviously is who i desire to grow up to become um and so uh so they are both in this like modest middle class suburb and then the husband of molly parker's husband becomes a stockbroker and they move to a bigger house on a fancier side of town. And their neighbors across the street are um, these really hot swingers with a swimming pool. And they just start getting into like, you know, the, that seventies, that seventies lifestyle. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like there's quaaludes, there's, like, <laughs> I mean, it, it's, there's Harry Reeves makes an appearance. It's all happening. Anyway, the recaps of that show would always have a section called, like familiar reference, the children, won't somebody think of the children? And it's just it's like, I'm like, so first of all, Elizabeth is manipulated by pictures of her children who she mm-hmm. like, who apparently are so unimportant to her that she doesn't have a contingency plan for their school pickup. Like, weird, weird disconnect there. 
Um, but yeah, these kids are just living in a whole other fucking world, man. Like they're just off on the margins using pay phones. Like, oof. I know that was the only option at the time, but it just was like, <laughs> they're just, they're like wandering. They're like, they're in the whiz, you know, they're just like wandering. <laughs> they're in the whiz. Dark, Great. Gross street. Getting picked up by a molesting drifter. Like, what? Can I make two observations about the molesting drifter, Nick? Yes, yes. The, the, the shot of his car as they're getting into it centers on the American, American flag, flag detail on the front bumper, which, like, calling attention to that seems notable. And secondly, this is very similar, Danielle, like, to the Jennings car. Like to the brown oh, sedan yeah. that the well, Jennings themselves have, and that since the first episode is, you know, they was quote unquote in the shop, right? Yeah, um, because Until, they had a guy stuffed in the trunk for yeah. several days. And um, but aren't they in that car? Yes. Later, that yes, Philip just are. like casually drives into a tree. No yeah, warning. No muss. No fuss. Thing. Yep. Yep. Well, and. I'll put it out here now and maybe we can talk about it in Danielle Dossier also, but like my, my notes were, um, this guy is creepy and also a Russian agent in all capital letters. I don't know. There was something about the, the way that I was reading it. And this of course doesn't come to fruition in this episode. So maybe this is just like a, a dead, dead in the water, like the ducks theory. Um, (laughs) they're not hungry. No ducks. Not too many ducks in this today. man-made pond. There are no ducks. Um, but my like working theory while I was watching the episode was that this dude is also like on the Russian agent surveillance team that took Philip and Elizabeth, and he's the one who's taken the kids, and he'll let them go when like all this when they figure out they're not the mole, or he'll kill them when they decide they are the mole. That's not where we went, but that was like. There was something about the American flag and the and the like dialed yeah. up creepiness that that put me. There's there. nothing more Russian than midday ennui. <laughs> what is like all of Turgenev if not midday? Exactly. Ennui? <laughs> I'm like, you're right. This guy's got all day to just go and like stare at the water and feed the ducks and wax po- like wax philosophical. He about yeah, violence and God, but about also violence and God. Right? Was that it a gun is or a knife? He had a knife. Yeah, uh, I wanted yep. it to be Chekhov's gun. Of course you did. Of course. That's okay. It was Chekhov's Dutch beer. <laughs> Fair. Danielle, don't worry. There will be plenty of Chekhov's gun, Chekhov's other things for us to refer back Love. to constantly and to an annoying extent over the next eight May years I, of our lives. May I, just suggest an additional segment <laughs> called Chekhov's Stuff? <laughs> oh, that's a good one. I do like that one. <laughs> okay. We'll put it in um, the think tank. I will just felt nice. I will just say, like, just the general atmosphere of benign neglect that these children are left. I'm like, of course, it's normalized to see young children like without a way to get home who are using a payphone and are walking the streets by themselves and are like, it's it's walking the streets of the well manicured bougie ass suburbs. Let us. Also, what mall are they at? That's ten miles away from somewhere in the D.C. suburbs. They're 10 10 miles from home, yes? Yeah, but, like, what mall are they at? Not that I expect us to know, but I was like, I don't know. There are seven malls, like, within 10 miles of my parents' house. (laughs) 
and ten miles is the farthest away. Look, we aren't all as civilizationally advanced as Long Island, Danielle. <laughs> all right, indeed, like, we can't all achieve that pinnacle of it existence. It was like ten miles from the yet mall. To see these kids eat a good bagel. So, <laughs> fair. So, no, I mean, until someone on this character has a bagel, I'm never going to be sure of their national allegiances. <laughs> <laughs> was there any other stuff on the kids that we wanna that we wanna hit on? Uh, yeah. Everything about everything I have to say about the kids is um, their aesthetics, and so perhaps we'll save it for. Yeah. <laughs> okay, then I then I will make one more comment about the kids: is that their whether they know about what their parents are doing or they not do. via reference to Danielle Dossier theories, uh, <laughs> but to keep that question open, they have clearly internalized the secrecy, nostalgia, easy lying, etc. of yeah. the paranoia of the Jennings household, right? Paige is like, we can't say a word of this. This has to be our secret, I think yeah. is the language that she yeah. uses. And then uh, when Philip and Elizabeth get home, so quickly, so easily, Henry comes up with the lie that Shelley's parents, Shelley's mom drove us home after the mall, like no hesitation. So clearly they have excelled at some of the elements of spycraft, yeah. whether they know what consciously what their parents are doing or don't know what their parents are doing, because that is an open question as far as Danielle and Amy are concerned. And Elizabeth doesn't call the mom. My first say. thought was call the mom and she doesn't. She also knows that her kids know. <laughs> Oh, or like, you know, is willfully ignorant about it. Right. Like perhaps like if, if we want to, regardless of whether the kids know or not, Elizabeth trusts her children to the extent that she does not want to like, that's the one sort of like domestic bubble for her. Right. The kids. And so it's important for her that, she thinks they don't know that she thinks they don't lie or Danielle. Does she see her children as an extension of the spy project? And that essentially like their safety comes second. You know what I mean? Like that she just is so committed to the cause that she just like needs the convenience of not having that, you know, that, that interrupting concern. I mean, I think that's part of what we, at least that's part of what I read out of her reaction to the walls of, of pictures, right? Like that whether or not she has an emotional attachment to them. And I do think that she does, but she's not having a reaction to the, the walls full of their pictures. I think in part because her first commitment is to being a spy also, I mean, I think it's like, and there's some 80s of this, but also like we're going down a Hanley family rabbit hole. <laughs> Our favorite. Our favorite rabbit hole. We'd love to see it. We like, we had for a while, like a live-in babysitter when my mom was like opening a dance studio. And this is around the time where my fourth sister, Becky, who's about seven and a half years younger than I am, was born. So Bernadette, the the babysitter, was, like, at home watching Becky. And we were all, I don't know, somewhere else, maybe at, like, dance class or something. And Bernadette was, like, meant to be watching Beck. But, like, we, we all got home and, like, Bernie had left the house. But Becky was still in her crib, like, sleeping. 
Um, and so, like, I remember my the the franticness of my mom. Yeah. In that moment, which like makes sense, and I think Rebecca was like in her crib by herself, sleeping for like. 20 minutes total it like was fine and bernie like was still our babysitter for a a much longer time after that but there's none of that with elizabeth there's none of the like she's not panicked about the kids and my first thought like when she gets taken is and and then the next scene is is like Paige and Henry waiting for her to pick them up. And we know that she's not coming. My first thought was like, Oh God, like what, how's this going to like happen? And that like does not even rise to her level of consciousness, even though at least it's not being said to us, even though she is like confronted with pictures of them. And I think there's something important about that. There is. I think that's a totally plausible reading. If I can offer one other reading, it's that perhaps like the, the fear, concern, anxiety, whatever about the kids in that situation is part of what is sublimated into her just viciously attacking Claudia when all is said and done, right? Like, yeah. not only did you distrust me, not only did you distrust Philip, not only did you whatever and whatever, but also, like, you seem to have indirectly put the children in danger. I'm not committed to that read. I'm not committed to that interpretation, but I think that's also a possibility. I think, like, both of those things can be true, right? I think, like, she can channel that into, like, the beating of Claudia while also, like, actually not be, like worried about it right I, like i love that particular both ending that was that was high class yeah we love a both and i think that's like our third or fourth one today which Great. feels good new, new record in inspired by amy because we know how much she loves a both and i'm so yeah i'm so happy to contribute <laughs> um the i think like the last big thing i want to I want us to touch on is at least in like this section is the Martha and Gregory of it all. Like, I think first of all, it is notable that Gregory is back. It's, and I think it's notable that after they have this fight, this tension and they get home, both Philip and Elizabeth, like go back out. Yeah. Which I was like, first of all, what time is it? But but second of all... And like, what the and- fuck do the kids think? Oh, our parents got into a car accident. I had to hitchhike my way home and beat up this creepy dude. And they're peacing out. <laughs> Gotta go see our other lovers. Peace out. Bye. An advertisement for polyamory back in 1981, apparently. Philip it does an advertisement for it. <laughs> well, it does make one ask, like, can spies ever really be poly? You know? Like, just... You can take have... myself out of this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> they, they take the E out of ENM is, I think, the, the proper yeah. way to put it. Martha, Martha loves the necklace. He really does, which speaks volumes about her character, I have to say. Because um, that's one tacky Zales ass piece of <laughs> what like, Paige, Paige really read her as well as <laughs> Philip, which he's like, she'll love this. <laughs> and that's, that's an appropriate observation because that's so 
well-characterized vis-a-vis both the Clark persona of Philip and Martha as characters, right? Clark would buy the, like, tacky piece from Zales. Martha would like the tacky piece from Zales. Which is exactly what Elizabeth is saying, right? Right. And that's why there's more, like, in some ways, I don't know how analogous these two, like, secondary relationships are if they can be <laughs> because um like martha's not having a relationship with philip she's having a relationship with adam what's his face um which is so sad uh, by the way oh my god with that wig and those glasses and he and she's like maybe somebody else can take over my professional liaising and it's like girl if he says no to that that's that's something to pay attention to. Uh, meanwhile, like at least Elizabeth and Gregory, like there's more chemistry, more like intimacy yeah. in that brush of their hands on the step of like, there's, there's just such a genuine understanding and yearning between the two of them. At least as far as I understand it, the like Martha Clark relationship is on the come up <laughs> and mm. Philip and Elizabeth, uh, rather Elizabeth and Gregory were like, like this was a long-standing relationship, and it actually just recently like disintegrated. Um, right. Gregory was Elizabeth's attempt to actually do Polly. Yeah, nice. <laughs> in those terms, there's the moment when Gregory tells Elizabeth, "I'll be your eyes," which is just so beautifully line red and so poignant in that particular moment, given like the emotional currents that you two have just identified. Big time. All right. Should, I, we, should we go to segments? Should we do some shtick now? Yeah, let's we get should. it. To I just want to make one quick note, which is that the actress who plays um, Sandy, Stan's wife, mm-hmm. um, I had the like Leonardo DiCaprio meme, like pointing at the TV, and, like, <laughs> um, because she is a, uh, Rufus Humphrey's ex-wife and Gossip Girl. Um, so Susie Meisner, and she will come back around later on in another segment. But I'm just like, damn, Susie Meisner, you keep picking some really weird partnerships with some dudes with some secrets. winners. Yeah. Your, and, type is, your type's dudes with secrets. And she's then the third of the triad slash sextet of... There's the her and Stan scene, which happens around the same time as the Clark, Martha, oh, Elizabeth yes. Gregory scene. Yep. That was so good, though. I, like, was really happy that there was that scene. One of the things that John and I have talked about, like, before is just that the the Stan-Sandy stuff is tough. Like, Stan's backstory, right, is, like, and we get a little bit of it in this episode, but his backstory is, like, that he was basically like embedded in a like white, white supremacist, supremacist biker gang in Arkansas. And so he couldn't talk to her for a couple of years because he was like in the biker gang. Um, and so that trauma like comes up for him a bunch of different times. And they like, he basically, I think the last episode ends with him being like, I'm struggling. I'm struggling to even be able to talk to you. So then when he could like tell her something this time, I was like, yes, domestic bliss. Except for the fact that when he says, oh, I was scared for somebody that I worked with. His fear is for Nina, who he's falling in love with. (laughs) His agent, who he's running, who he's falling in love with. Baby steps. So let's then go to some shtick. And Danielle, you have an important question to pose to Amy about our first segment, I believe. 
Yes. So the first segment is called Borrowed Nostalgia for the Unremembered 80s. And John claims that this is like a reference to something that I have no idea what it is. Do you know what this is a reference to? I I cannot honestly say I know what it's a reference to, but it does feel like a TikTok trope of some kind. Wrong answer. Okay. Great. <laughs> okay. Join me on the side. So, you were so ready for me to be wrong. You were yep. hoping. I'm, Join I'm, me on the side of not having any clue. I'm trying to predict who the first person. I need to think who like had as much hipster bullshit in the years. Let's like broadly say the late aughts to early 2010s, as, mid to late aughts to early 2010s as I did. And you two are both above that, so. We'll, we'll, we'll keep going. But, um, Amy, what are some of the eighties vibes that, that you were present? What is the, no, what is the, no, 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 Mm -hmm. we're, we, I can't know until someone gets it. I can tell you off air, Amy. Okay. 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 Great. great. (laughs) You can't tell me. I want to be surprised on air when we, when we find this out. The, okay. the build up to this is going to, it's going to be so anticlimactic. I love it. it. Right. Um, if you, so if you may recall the delivery in the office when um, Dwight goes, Beats, Bears, Battlestar Galactica, <laughs> that was me as I was watching like the first 20 minutes of this show where I was like, Bangs, Payphone, Bugs, <laughs> Rainbow Stripe Jacket. Yes, the Rainbow Stripe Jacket was like, everyone in the 80s had that. There's something very specific about that maroon color for interiors. Yes. Oh, so much. Did I ever tell you guys about my, I was in elementary school. I had a jean jacket, but it had a backpack like in the jacket. (laughs) Like you didn't have to wear a backpack. It was like, sounds like extremely (laughs) early nineties to me. Yeah. Yeah, No, this was 1989. I was in kindergarten. Okay. Love it. Um, yeah, the first thing that struck me was the bangs on the kids. Paige's bangs are aggressive in this episode. It's so much. And it, their hair, first of all, both of them have most terrible hairstyles. And the bangs are just, <laughs> like, they look, they just give them the kind of, like, shaggy, like, Maurice Sendak kind of look. Oh <laughs> Chicken soup with rice. The I'm thinking wild things, but yes, like, all in that genre. <laughs> Great reference. Burn. Great 80s reference. Burn on Paige's hairstyle. So the funny thing is that I have, there's a student in our department who I've had in class before who looks eerily like Holly Taylor, who plays Paige. It's very, very strange to now be rewatching this show. Um, (laughs) The phones are miraculous in this episode. I mean, let's start with the payphones. Please. I mean, like, this, of course, is, like, a very easy plot device of any historical, like, mid-20th century historical narrative. It's like, ah, the payphone, so you can't trace the call. Although, of course, they do know when the payphone comes from outside FBI headquarters because they have have the technology. (laughs) Um, But... um, but yeah, the payphone. So you know, you're like, of course, you don't have a cell phone, so you're, these kids can't get a, an Uber, for for example. <laughs> you know, like um, the yeah, they're just a great device. And then, of course, the corded phones in the interiors, the um, gigantic single color plastic. Absolutely. But, but also, like the thing that I love so much was in the scene where. Paige is calling home and it's like, 
one phone, another phone, another phone, and none of the phones look the same, but it's all like the most, it's like ratcheting up the 80s vibes every time they they go to a new room. Yeah. <laughs> I think my favorite of the phones was Martha's phone. Mm, yeah. What made that your favorite phone? It's, it's, it's related to, I think, another point that Amy wants to discuss, and that is it was the perfect, like, 80s plastic yeah. vis-a-vis the 80s decor in which <laughs> the tableau of which it was a part um, that it just, it just really worked for me on an aesthetic level. Nice. Amy, what, what rugs and other things would you like to identify as important I, I, to you? I honestly cannot remember who, who each rug belongs to. <laughs> okay. The maroon burgundy rug with the little gold dots. The fact that the bedroom that um, Philip and Elizabeth's bedroom yeah. is all done in that maroon <laughs> yeah. brass bed, a brass bed that TBH does not look like a queen to me. Like, <laughs> so I think theirs is a queen, but Stan and Sandy is clearly a full. Definitely a full. Yeah. Why? Like, I'm sorry. Just question mark. No, Emmerich is a tall man. Yeah, I, it doesn't make any sense. I think it's that Stan and Sandy's bed is a full because Sandy is trying to manipulate Stan to being yeah. near her. Yeah. I think yeah. it's a choice. I like that. I like that yeah. a lot. Because she clearly has yeah. done all of the shopping, oh. decorating, home design, He was in the white supremacist biker gang. He wasn't or, right. buying shit. <laughs> and he had, like, one day where he was helping unpack from the move, and then he was, you know, in... in FBI headquarters or whatever. He's, he's playing racquetball with Philip. He is. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I know. <laughs> it's really sad. I really was hoping we could get Amy's thoughts on racquetball fashion, racquetball yeah. etiquette, racquetball yeah. masculinity. But I was just thinking, as you mentioned, I was like, man, there's something you don't hear about anymore. A racquetball. <laughs> don't worry. They made it too hard and they just defaulted to pickleball. <laughs> we'll make sure that the, the next right episode that you're on. Pickleball. <laughs> What's that? We'll make sure that the next episode you're on, there is some racquetball in it. Oh, we'll good. do our best. Amy's for the listeners' uh, knowledge is going to be at least once a season. On at least, not quite great books. I think I'm not busy producing. Exactly. Exactly. Behind. <laughs> behind the curtain. Behind the curtain. Um, exactly. Exactly. The only other '80s reference I want to identify is just how much the plot line with the kids was after school special core stranger danger situation like very just like very like an odd form of nostalgia of like the way that stranger danger was talked about when i was a youth of my own (laughs) i granted that's a little bit later than this but yeah no i think they my biggest problem is that like at least where we are in the season, it didn't go anywhere. Like there isn't, I, I maintain there's more of a connection, but like the stranger danger vibes, which is like hardcore eighties nostalgia. What I feel like the next thing that was going to happen is like McGruff, like tough on crime was going to pop out of like <laughs> one of the phone booths. Right. And like, isn't it, isn't it sort of ironic that in all of this spy craft, in fact, like, the greatest threat potentially to any, to like people's physical safety in this moment is just some random drifter dude with a knife. Yeah. Yeah. 
and a bad haircut. Um, and Dutch beer. And Dutch beer, of course. <laughs> Not a thing. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, minor character of the week time. It's not Dutch beer, unfortunately. Although given Henry puts it to such good use, it could have been. Yeah. Amy, I think we want to at least initially turn over minor character of the week to you. In part because that's a tell on narrative structure-wise. What does this particular episode or who does this particular episode situate as a minor right. character? So my my pick for this, um, and again, this is based on one episode uh, of this show, is, uh, and I know her name in the show is Claudia, but she is Margot Martindale, obviously. <laughs> um, and she's, it, anytime Margot Martindale's in something, like, she's the most important whatever it is that she is, you know? Like, she's always brings, like, resolve, gravitas, like, no bullshit. I mean, I just am like, oh, wow, here's a person who's, like, really serious. Like, damn, I gotta pay attention to what's going on with Margot Martindale. Um, and her sort of... Um, I was sort of shocked that she couldn't fight, that she didn't have, like, her own fighting skills back against Elizabeth. I was like, this woman should also be trained to fight and, like, fucking kick her ass. Honestly? So what's going on there? Honestly, that's a good call. So... I will reveal that Claudia or Margot Martindale, we can go with that, is not a super minor character. She's recurring. Um, yeah. But, which, like, I, I think you've gathered. But I think your point about, like, she should be able to fight, we've seen her bond with Elizabeth about, like, lady spy skills. Like, she should be able to fight. I think she's just so taken aback by yeah. and surprised by the, like, the reaction of Elizabeth that like, that is part of what accounts for it. But like, yeah, I, I don't disagree with your analysis. Like she should be able to fight. Yeah. I guess if I was going to pick someone even more minor, it would be the clerk at the tea shop who drops in the diamonds and the tea bag. Great call. Who pulls off that like very small, very precise, like maneuver really expertly after like offsetting Vasily, like by, you know, asking if he knows the right by temperature to boil tea. by mansplaining tea to the Russian guy who actually literally mansplained tea to yeah. Nina an episode, an episode ago. ago. Uh, <laughs> right. Right. And so like sets Vasily's like off kilter, knocks over the change. Brilliant. Deft maneuver. Yeah. Um, John, do you want to give us your minor character of the week? I think it's our minor character of the week, and that is this motherfucker who's torturing Philip, the yeah. like head interrogator guy. Just the the chest build of this man is remarkable. Yeah. The affect he takes with Philip, the weird way he issues threats. There's just a lot happening yeah. with this guy. I, yeah, I mean, I'm on board with this as, as our minor character of the week. And again, my notes say this dude looks very American, must be Russian intel. So I think like there is something happening there with like the size and shape of him. I think like he's well chosen for the not Russian, but actually Russian. True. <laughs> Smoke and mirrors. True. <laughs> Let's have some conspiracy theories. Danielle, I think we we should open the floor to you first, and then if Amy needs to come in hot with some more theories and yeah. takes, we should we should let it roll. 
Yeah, I want to invite Amy into Danielle Dossier into the conspiracy <laughs> corner because I am like my I, what I love about this show is that there's just like so there's so much real estate for conspiracy theories. So like I think I said this a little bit earlier, but my working conspiracy is basically like that. Elizabeth is running Philip in a way like she's so the art their arc in this season is that like they're developing this actual romantic relationship where one hasn't been before it's like new and and whatever and as part of that a few episodes ago where when we meet Gregory she essentially breaks up with him she's like uh you can like be part of our spiring but like I'm with him now and it's like difficult for him to watch and there's some really interesting tension. So I feel like in this episode, there are a couple of pieces where it's like, okay, first of all, here's some evidence that Philip, that like Philip is being manipulated by Elizabeth. And I think part of it is like the going back to Gregory, I think supports this line of reasoning. I don't know. Do you have thoughts on this? Well, do I have thoughts on your theory? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would just want to put out, like, I don't know if this is crazy, but I think my theory is that everyone on the show is a spy. <laughs> I don't know if that's crazy to say. Every single person. I think this is a show about spies. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, we've um, taught you one thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I think I've cracked it. No. Um, you know, I see where you're coming from with it. I'm hesitant only because, like, if she were running him, she'd be better at it. And she just wouldn't have those. She, like, we would we would have complete faith in her at this point in the arc of the series. Her reveal would have to be so much more abrupt in a way. No, that's fair. Uh, this is helpful because John can't really respond to any of this because he, like, knows what's up. And so it's helpful to have somebody else who, like, has not seen this show um, to bounce my wacky theories off of. I think my other, like, big theory is, like, the kids, at least Paige knows that her parents are spies. Like, I'm confident that that will eventually come true for you. <laughs> like, whether or not it will be in this exact moment in the series, unclear. But at some point, she will figure it out. Yeah. I will I will make one observation about that second point. And this, I think, can lend a yes or no to that. So I don't feel like I'm spoiling, I'm spoiling Daniel Dossier. Um, there is a moment where Paige, like Henry, wets himself when they get home. Cause, or he had at some point they get home. She recognizes that. And she's like, let's go down to the laundry room and get these clothes in the washing machine. So Amy, the laundry room is where there's like secret panels and stuff where they hide guns and money and passwords. Yeah. The laundry room is where it's at. Yeah. Nice. So yeah, I think I that that could lend credence to Danielle's uh, conspiracy theory or be a challenge yeah. to it. Yeah, and I think, like, just like we were talking about a little bit earlier, the fact that the kids slip so easily into lying that it's, like, so second nature to them is, is like, I think there's one way to read it, which we were tending towards earlier, which is, like, they've internalized this behavior of their parents, perhaps not in a particularly cognizant or conscious way, but, like, I want to read it as, like, at least Paige is, like, conscious about this adoption, um... And and so I think like we can read that move by the kids at like in support of my conspiracy theories. Excellent. Let's turn to Gloss 
Yeah. And Amy, I'd like to invite you to frame an interpretation, a meaning, a read, a take about this show opening this episode with a baseball game on in the background while Philip and Elizabeth are talking spy stuff. First of all, what is more American? Obviously, um, only yeah. a clear underscoring of the Americans. Um, and it's so just three things, right? It's like situating them in the United States. Um, they, it is, if any, if there's any subtle nod to the two different sort of societies and cultures that work here, it's like baseball leisure and these Russian spies just like grinding and hustling and freaking out. There's the radio, obviously. So it also just further situates us in a time of nostalgia when when we use radios and baseball was as popular as it deserves to be as our national pastime. Wow. Truth. Huge truth. <laughs> Danielle and Amy are two of the three biggest baseball fans that I know. And the third one will be joining us for this finale of season yeah. one of the Americans. Spoiler In which we alert. will carve out a Yankees corner. Well, we're, um, we're negotiating. We're negotiating. <laughs> we're negotiating. <Yeah. laughs> It'll be a corner that John's not a part of. put a cap on that Yankees corner. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, there's so much for a glass. Do we, uh, let me, let's start with a more minor observation. Maybe there's a, there's one bigger glass point to discuss. Elizabeth starts smoking again with Gregory. Yeah. And I just like to point out for Danielle and, and Amy for the episodes you drop in on how, whether and how much Elizabeth is smoking cigs is an indicator of emotional turmoil slash spy stress. As the spy stress slash emotional turmoil increases, the chain smoking levels rise. That is helpful. But, and also I think like, I wonder if the smoking cigarettes also tracks for others. Like I feel like Nina smoking, um, is also related to her stress levels. Like where we, we see her smoking as she's like walking to Stan's car, which is like creepily in a half garage. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) <laughs> Speaking of Nina, uh, Amy, do you have any thoughts on Vasily's hat, Vasily's <laughs> grunting during sex, Vasily's like general demeanor as he's being framed for espionage? Persona. <laughs> his, um, his glasses, like what? Referring to his younger lover as his medicine. Correct. That, <laughs> oh, that also. I that don't also, love it. In a, in a hard time, you know. Yeah, listen, like, it's giving, it's giving slight Jabba the Hutt vibe. <laughs> wow, that is the best thing I've ever heard you say. And you said a lot of great things, but that's the best thing I've ever heard. That's the perfect reference. We okay. should cut that to Daniel Dossier, actually. And the end. Yeah. <laughs> Can I make one or two observations about? Be, I mean, yeah. they're, they're like one a thousandth as insightful as the job of the hut comp, but I still like to make these points nonetheless. I've been basking it, <laughs> and that and that is stands like bullshit calls to Vlad at the <laughs> desk of the Russian embassy where it's like, I, how did they not know this is, they're being set up that this is a fake. It's like, I, I get that Vlad is not 
like a trained spy like Vasily or Arkady is. But how does he not understand what the fuck is happening? I believe what you're looking for is not the sharpest tool in the shed. <laughs> hey, now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I needed that reference to be, to be made explicit to me. So thank you. You two can well, both continue singing. I'll start. First of all, I almost, I almost nominated Vlad for my minor character of the week because he's just like so stupid. Like, but he's like also like loyal and friendly to Nina. Like cares. Like the only person who ex- genuinely expresses care for Nina in a non-manipulative way is Vlad. In fact, the only other comparison I would draw is Tony Soprano to his first girlfriend, the Russian girlfriend that he was quite like huh. he sort of doted upon. It just gave me similar. I mean, like it could just be the the demographics here, but. Yeah, I can see the surprise tenderness there. Okay, but just, so one, I've never seen The Sopranos, <laughs> so lost on me, but I'll appreciate it anyway. But I do just want to point out, Vlad can be caring and still stupid, because there's a mole at the Residentura, right? Like, everybody knows that there's a mole here, and Nina's doing some shady shit with the file cabinets and she went to the bathroom and came back to the file cabinet. It's like, even if you're not a spy, like even if you care for Nina, you're like, that behavior is a little bit suspect. So I should do something about it. So I maintain Vlad's an idiot. (laughs) True. More credit given to the rest of the setup that they have for, for yeah. Vasily, the diamonds and the loose leaf tea, right? The Stan having Nina smuggle in the like little photo device that she then hides in Vasily's office, which she's already established she can go into even when he's not there. Like that's all done very well. The like vodka summit between Arkady Ivanovich and Vasily yeah. uh, that happens that leads to the conversation of, of course, we have to check you out after all of this. Like, Vasily says, oh, yeah, I have nothing to hide. I would do the same if the roles were reversed. And then, like, the very, very swift downfall. And he is just, like, totally shocked by the outcome of this. In which case, it's like, whether you did or didn't engage in intentional betrayal, the fact that it could happen under your watch is what disqualifies you, spy-wise. Fair. And then the look he gives Nina as he's being led down the stairs by two very tall, very strong KGB men. Strapping. Strapping is the word I was indeed looking for. (laughs) Um, Quick Danielle dossier break in. Danielle, do you expect we will ever see Vasily on this show again? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't think he's gone. Okay. Um, there's other gloss stuff. I will highlight one other thing in particular, and that okay. is Nina and Stan had this meetup at the okay. art museum and there's like this trippy light installation with like ambient music playing. And I'm, you know, I, I know that this is set in the 1980s. I have definitely been in like dozens of those similar styles of <laughs> of like installations at your like new museum in New York, at your mass mocha up in the Berkshires and on and on. And let's just say that like 
I would have been the woman in that room with them because I'm like, I yes, yeah. yeah, show me the like weird <laughs> like contemporary art expressive expressionism light installation uh, with some ambient music playing. I'm happy to sit there and contemplate and but you know, but also I do just want to like point out that the let's meet at a a weird exhibit that takes place in a room is like some serious spycraft stuff. Which I just appreciate for the like the spycraft of it all. Well, and yet again, spycraft mixed with like courtship, kind of. It's not not dating. Yeah. Oh yeah. A billion percent. Like, <laughs> did, billion did, percent. did I go on first dates at the Brooklyn Museum when I lived ten minutes from the Brooklyn Museum? Yes, I did. <laughs> That's my nightmare. Great point, Amy. Great. <laughs> my point there but also like a great point in terms of uh stan and nina which is like that relationship is like lots of question marks and i would say like the emoji that has the swirly eyes mm-hmm. strong <laughs> swirly eyes um have we come to what is our new uh segment this yes, week we have. which i am calling not quite shark tank in which our guest is going to pitch us on something that we should be doing or watching or reading um and we will be the not quite sharks and evaluate whether or not we you know take the bait <laughs> I assume that's my cue to begin the pitch. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Amy, who is, like, the best pitch skills yeah. of anyone that I know in my Ever life. Met. So this is a, a high bar. Then, Sharks, thank you for letting me be here with you today. <laughs> I, it's particularly fitting for me to inaugurate a segment about Shark Tank with a pitch <laughs> that follows the language of finance, <laughs> of capital, of risk, Yes, I speak of the show Billions. (laughs) Furthermore, if by watching this show, you indicate that you like rivalries, uh, sabotage, betrayal, um, and personal conflicts that are really just um, sort of avatars for different visions of like capitalism and power. May I recommend billions yet again as a show that will tick all of those boxes. Um, You in this show, you will find um, surprising, surprising allegiances to different characters. Um, You will find weird shifting romantic plots. You will find, whereas instead of, Spycraft with the intimate domain. Here we have um, a more holistic understanding of power uh, mixed with the intimate terrain, uh, it, particularly in the relationship between Paul Giamatti's um, Chuck Rhodes and his wife, Maggie Siff's Wendy Rhodes, um, who have a uh, consensual BDSM relationship where Wendy Rhodes is his dom. Um, there's it's, I mean, this thing has everything. It's got politics. It's got SEC regulations. <laughs> um, it's got like 
Uh, I mean, it manages to really elevate um, what you would think of as like, oh, prosecution of corporate malfeasance, like snooze fast. You're like, (laughs) oh, no. Like, I really do want to know. And I want to observe the the different sort of um, uh, versions of masculinity that are marshaled in support of these different visions of like private power, public power, public power that's actually really all about private power. Um, obviously there are plot lines about philanthropy in it. That's like second episode. Um, so of course I'm in it for that. Um, and it's a great portrayal of, um, politics, conflict and politics and finance and conflict and power all set in New York city. And I really think it's worth watching. Listen, I'm not buying any of these shares, like not at all, but I will say the pitch was good. Paul Giamatti almost did it for me and I'm open to it. So I'm open to like, I'm open. I feel like maybe three seasons in or three episodes in when you have like given us this pitch from a couple of different angles, I might be willing to like dabble in the billions pond. I'm not as opposed to it as I was when you started this pitch. I think that's progress. That's that's very promising to me. See, that pitch demonstrates why Amy is a pro. Um, yeah. <laughs> and that, like, if it wasn't for, you know, I, I have to place uh, Danielle and I as a, like, assemblage first and foremost. If it was me solo and I was not dependent on my investment partner slash podcast partner, Danielle, <laughs> I think I would have, I think I would have bought a whole bunch of shares and just forked over the dollars um, yes. because that pitch was like, the pitch was good, was excellent and very exquisitely paralleled or mirrored two things that Danielle and I like about the Americans. Yeah. And so like, that was just, that was, you know, that was some real king shit. Yeah, and you underplayed the, like, rich people riching about of it all, which I do really appreciate. Smart. Knows her audience. I do. I do know my audience. God, you're so good at it. Fuck. Thank you. (laughs) Almost there, Amy. I guess you'll have to pitch us on billions again the next time you're on (laughs) Not Quite Great Books. If I may just leave you with one teaser. Please. There will be a scene at some point in this show of Paul Giamatti playing air drums and and lip syncing to Al Green. I do feel good about that. So maybe bring that up next time. (laughs) Okay. Paul Giamatti is amazing. And also there's an episode of the Chris Gethard show that Manzoukas and Paul Shear are on. And the episode is called like it's called something like what's in the trash and they people are calling into the show trying to guess what's in a oh what's in my dumpster or something like that they're trying to guess what's in the dumpster and they're like paul and jason don't know what's in the dumpster initially it's on youtube you can watch it paul and jason don't initially know what's in the dumpster and then like gethard lets paul look in and then paul is like I am on board for people trying to guess this. So then they start giving people hints and then they let Jason look in. And it's just like, it. Th- this is the most amazing episode of television I've ever watched in my entire life. What's in the dumpster? Paul Giamatti. <laughs> <laughs> I- so, it, so it is the shark that has become <laughs> pitcher, it seems. Clever. Very clever. Oh. Uh, uh, anyway, 
I love it. There's there's one more momentous thing to happen in this episode of TV podcasting, and that is, Amy, will you please join us to go down into the cave? I I already live here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not descending anywhere. <laughs> um, I'm in the cave. We usually try to, rather, at the end of this, I usually decide whether or not we're chaining the theorist back up to the wall. Oh, cool. Okay. Okay. I'm prepared for either outcome. <laughs> so, Amy, we um, invited you to, we, 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 I should say, first we pressured you to be like, we think you should talk about this theorist in the cave. <laughs> And Amy, and because we respect Amy, did not want to do that. And instead, Amy's brilliance as a theorist shone through and brilliance as a pop culture critic shone through. And you have another theorist. We're not going to say the other theorist because I'm sure that'll happen down the line. Who would you like to bring with us into the cave today? I'd like to bring Hobbes to the cave. Beautiful. Tell us why. There's a line from, of all people... Um, creepy Nick. <laughs> Dutch beer in hand. <laughs> Dutch beer in hand. That's right. Um, without without a higher power, we're no better than wild dogs. First of all, this is an almost like to, like uh, verbatim restatement of <laughs> like Hobbes' argument of the sovereign, yeah. right? Which is that you need a higher power in order to like make human life anything other than complete like chaos and disaster and, and violence and destruction. Um, so, you know, we're no better than wild dogs. The, the dog reference, of course, specifically to this podcast harkens back to a, an excellent meme, perhaps never to be topped created by our own host, John McMahon, that of Doge Leviathan, Leviathan. figure of Leviathan as portrayed on a, a, one of the editions of said book. Uh, with the head of the Doge character yep. of meme fame transposed onto that. Uh, John, would you like to comment further? Um, yes, I, I appreciate the the care with which you brought in Doge Leviathan into this conversation. I have to say, for a long time, I considered that to be my greatest academic accomplishment. But then Dogecoin took off, and Elon Musk got behind Dogecoin. And I've I've had less ardor for for Doge Leviathan since you know over the past year or two. That, that, you can't let Musk win, man. Oh, like you gotta you tell stand me. your Fair. ground, right? You gotta say like, listen, I claim this as an expression of a particular con you can't you can't co opt yeah, it. I like that. Damn. Right. And no. Yeah. No. But <laughs> I refuse. But the Hobbes the Hobbes point is great. Right. The Hobbes point right. is really great. There's there's a there's a great piece by Su Fong Eng about Hobbes and like the figure of the wolf in mm. about the, the figure of the wolf in Hobbes and like animality and how animality functions in Hobbes's theory, which obviously is closely tied to Creepy Nick's uh, quote that you brought us out. There's also the like the the imposition of is morality coming from religion? Is the state dictating yeah. how morality functions? Uh, with this higher power situation, right? Because clearly uh, Nick is making a reference, potentially like fake reference to God, but also like maybe he is the sovereign, he is the Leviathan of this this situation. Well, and I think also like where to expand from Nick a little bit, 
where the hobs of it all hit for me is this, uh, this like question of like, who do we trust? Where is truth? Like, where does, like, where does the authority come from? And like the moment where we see Elizabeth starting to kick the shit out of Claudia is a moment where that breaks, right? Mm -hmm. It's a moment where like, the Leviathan is like no longer sort of this like unified whole that she holds up. And I think like there's something profound about that for like the Elizabeth Soviet love story. Yeah. This is in all seriousness why I was, why I considered Hobbes to be most appropriate because there's so, there's a lot of violence, Mm -hmm. but there's no real, authority yeah. in this episode, right? Like there, the, this breakdown of trust, as you point out, Danielle, it's just like, there's, it, it breathes exactly the kind of violence and fragmentation of relations that Hobbes predicted. Like the very fact of attacking their own and, you know, just sort of everyone being very confused about whom to trust uh, in, in a sad way, I think uh, supports a lot of, <laughs> Bob's thesis about human nature. Human nature only in the particular, only in a particular set of conditions, right? It's not, it's not an essential human nature. Correct. No, absolutely. Well, I think, right. There's also, there's also an element of like the, the bigger conflict here between us and the USSR and the way in which like those, bigger conflicts are controlled by the sort of like amorphous bodies outside amorphous authorities, like outside of the individuals. Um, But yet it is the individuals making up and legitimizing that authority. And like, again, that breakdown with like Elizabeth and Claudia, that moment is like so crucial for, for thinking about that. And which of these two Leviathans has the biggest scepter after all? Can I offer a sense Amy brought in some Creeper Nick, uh, a Creeper Nick quote. A couple thoughts about Creeper Nick that we didn't get to earlier. Just yeah. like, why did he have the bread in the first place? It's like, this is strategy that he has where he picks up hitchhikers and is like, let's go feed the ducks. I just so happen to have some bread here. Like, there's a lot of questions about why does he have this hunk of like wonder bread to give to the ducks in the first place is question number one. Question number two is he has the like corniest ass line in this entire episode, which is when he tells Henry, you know, go feed the ducks. I'll introduce you to Donald. Like, but I'm thank you. Uh, I was like, Oh, that was supposed to be funny. And it's not. No, I mean, I, I think laughed. it's <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Creeper Nick, man. I think he's going to come back too. That's that's a that's a big drop at the end of the episode to sneak in a little more Danielle Dossier. Yeah, well, we can, we're, I mean, your Danielle Dossier is just her defaulting to everyone being <laughs> like here. correct. That's a read, but it's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, what do we think? Are we chaining Hobbs back up in the cave? Are we leaving him down here? Like he, he gets to he gets to be a puppet master. I think that's I think my that's right. Mind. He gets to like dance behind the wall. Yeah. with the shapes. He's entranced everybody with the image of the Leviathan and its projection and everything. So he's. I yeah. think that's the right place for him. In the in let the him scene. entrance Rousseau. I think we tra- we changed Rousseau like a couple <laughs> of weeks ago. Obviously. 
obviously. <laughs> Man is born free, but in the cave in chains. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Producer Amy, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so on, happy the- to be on this side of the board. <laughs> no, not quite. Great book. A TV, a TV podcast. podcast. <laughs> Um, you guys are doing an amazing work right here. <laughs> I'm very happy to be part of this. But, uh, so I think the crucial question is, are, are you willing to come back in season two? Of course. Right. Of course I am. Amazing. I thought you were going to ask me if I was going to watch more of The Americans and honestly, TBD. You'll watch I mean, at least the next episode that we have you on for where yeah. I oh. think the requirements were racquetball, if I remember correctly. Were there yeah, any true. other... Uh, you know, constraints based on based on the episode. We'll see you next time for uh, season one, episode seven, duty and honor. And so, thank um, you for joining us for not quite great books, a TV podcast. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast, which was created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and actually legitimately today, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. You should like and subscribe and leave reviews and tell your friends about this podcast so that they listen to it as well. We are thankful for Electro Trend 60s by Les FM, which you heard at the beginning and the end of this episode. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs> Sorry, Daniel's breaking down over there. <laughs> Amy just like having a bunch of different like white tooth names. <laughs> <laughs> it's really getting me going. <laughs>